0: Uh, Bryce, for leading us in prayer and reading scripture for us. Um, By way of introduction, just a reminder what we're doing over uh, the next several weeks as a church is we are considering what you could call the core values of Grace Valley Church. So, uh, you know, it's been six years or so since Grace Valley Church was planted. And since that time, we've had many new people arrive and join our community, which is super exciting. And by the way, reminds me, uh, Grace Valley people, if you see Grace Valley Church as your church, if you consider this your church, whether you're a member or an adherent or a very frequent attendee or something like that, your job is to look for a new face, after church and say hello and make people feel warm and welcome. And you'll look for a new face and you'll say, hi, are you new here? And they'll say, no, I've been coming for two years. And you'll say, I'm really sorry, but I don't know everybody yet. Please forgive me. What's your name? And have a conversation. That's how we show that we are a warm, welcoming community. So the onus is on us to be warm and welcoming to the new faces that we see around us, whether they're long-standing members of GVC or not. Anyhow, back to what we're talking about. We're talking about these core values. And like I said, there's lots of new people here who've been uh, joined to our community in the last little while. And this it's good for a church to remind itself every now and then why it exists, what it's there for in order that we stay on mission. <clears throat> you don't want to have what's called mission drift. You don't want to have A situation where you started to be one thing, and then over time, you kind of got pulled away from that one thing, and by the time you stop and recognize it, you discover you're another thing. You want to stay on mission in order to accomplish the thing that you believe that God has put you in this community for, and so that's why we're going through the core values of Grace Valley Church. And one of the things we're trying to do, okay, is we're trying to connect those core values with what we see as human needs, universal human needs. All human beings have a certain needs, certain desires that they're trying to have fulfilled, and we believe that the Christian faith uniquely meets those needs, and each of our core values speaks to one of those needs. So last time, we talked about the need for truth beings need something that they know is true, that doesn't change with the times and the cultures, that is not like the shifting sands that, that are so much a part of our lives, but is solid so that we can plant our feet on it and we know that that is the way things are no matter what's happening around us in the culture. All human beings need that. They need an anchor, okay? And we talked about God's Word last week, we talked about how God's Word is that anchor. Okay? This week we're going to talk about and if you've been attentive to the liturgy, you could probably guess we're going to talk about grace. Now I know we talk about grace every week. But we're really going to zero in on grace as as a thing that all human beings need. It's in our church name, and obviously, we want to emphasize it as a church. We want to demonstrate grace as a church. We want to be a place where grace is on display for so that they can see that grace is something that makes us tick. We want people who come to Grace Valley Church to experience grace. We want all of that. Why? Because every human being needs... Actually, every human heart longs for grace. Every human heart Longs for grace. Let me, let me try to demonstrate this for you. Ask yourself this question. I know you've probably asked it before. But ask yourself this question. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? On some level, every human being asks this question about themselves. There are people who, who ask the question, what's wrong with me, because they're in the midst of perhaps a, a, a major meltdown. Maybe they've, caught them, they've got caught up in, in an addiction that is destroying their lives. Maybe they've got caught up in lies that are, that are destroying their relationships. And it's very, very obvious to them, and to everybody around them, by the way, that there is something desperately wrong with them. But then there's other people who go through life looking pretty put together, you know. They come to church, kids are well-dressed and properly groomed, and they look like they've, they've eaten something this morning. And uh, they sit in the pew before they leave for Grace Kids. They seem to be pretty obedient and sit still, and they don't wriggle and wiggle and niggle about. And, and the, the, the mom and the dad, they both look kind of serene. And, you know, they got, they got clean clothes on, you know, with, with no wrinkles. Looks like the shirts have been pressed. Or at least they've known how to do laundry this past week, and they look like pretty, pretty good looking. And yet, whether you're a person who stumbled into this place and you're completely disheveled because you're a a train wreck of of a person, and you know that about yourself, or if you're a person who comes in here looking pretty put together, you know, like me, frankly. Underneath it all, friends, every single one of us is asking the question, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get my act together? I'm not talking about goals here. I'm not talking about achievement. I'm not talking about what's wrong with me? How come my RSP isn't as big as it should be by now? What's wrong with me? How come I haven't gotten as far in my career as I hope to by now? What's wrong with me? I'm 35 and I still don't own a house. What's wrong with me? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about character What's wrong with me? Why am I so impatient? Why do I lack such self-control? Why am I not very nice at times? Why can't I get over this, this this anger issue that I've got seething inside me all the time? We all, every one of us, we all fall short, okay, of our ideal, of what we think we should be and certainly what we want to be. We all fall short of it. Now, some of us, the way we deal with that is we just, we just let her rip, frankly. I have an addictive personality, therefore I'm going to get boiled in, into, into addictions and I'm just going to bury myself in, in that sinful pattern or whatever uh, in order to, to silence the voice that's constantly asking me what's wrong with me. Some of us, we say, I know what I'm gonna do. I am going to knuckle down and I am going to try harder. I can't keep a diet, but I'm gonna try again. I'm gonna get back up on that horse. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And some of us say, you know what? I've been at this long enough. This is me. And we say to the world, this is me. It's who I am. And the rest of you guys have to learn to deal with me as I am. I'm done trying to be the one to change and improve. It's now time for you to accept your, accept me as I am and adapt your responses to me, okay? And yet, the nagging feeling's there. You go to the self-help section of the bookstore. It is a multi-billion dollar industry, okay? Um, We have Atomic Habits. I think I own that one or Jessica bought it maybe. I don't know if either of us have read it yet, frankly. But we bought it, 12 Rules for Life, you know. Uh, I read one on, I just did a little Google search, The Mountain Is You, have you guys ever heard of that one? No, it's a bestseller, but not in these circles apparently. Um, Seven Habits of People, right? How to Win Friends and Influence People, these are all books that you can find in the self-help section or trying to make you feel better. Why? Because we all know we have not arrived. There is something wrong with us that desperately needs fixing. Now, here's where I'm going with this. In our culture today, religion, and certainly the Christian religion, are basically understood to be ways of achieving that self help goal you have before you. People get religious for A reason they have issues with anger or they have addiction issues or they struggle deeply with anxiety or they have relationships that are falling apart or or whatever, whatever and and religion becomes kind of a way for them to deal with it and so in our culture most people understand religions as basically being the same they all have different ways and different methods of getting to the same goal think of a mountain At the top of the mountain, you have either, you could call it salvation, you could call it transcendence, you could call it uh, actualization, self-actualization. That's kind of a a cool term that's being used in our context right now in our world. You call call it whatever you want, but it's basically the same peak, and religion is just a different path up the mountain to get to that peak. So Hindus will go up the south face and uh, Buddhists will go up the east face and Muslims will go up the north face and Christians will go up the, what's left, west face? And we all take a different path up the mountain, but then we arrive at the same destination. That's kind of how people understand religion in our culture right now. Is that true? Is that what Christianity is all about? Our text says absolutely not no our text teaches us that christianity is utterly 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 unique and it's that uniqueness that we're going to talk about today that makes christianity so attractive. the first hearers of this christian message they, learned, they heard what Christianity had to offer and it was so attractive to them that it changed them drastically and it was so powerful a message that it actually changed an entire world, an entire empire and the course of history and it is still changing lives today. You know what that message is? Grace. People met grace. They experienced Grace. This is what Christianity has to offer, that no other teaching in the world, and I have done my due diligence, okay? I have searched, okay, I haven't searched every corner of the globe, but you get what I'm saying. I've read about Buddhism, I've read about Hinduism, I've read about Judaism and Islam and the major world religions. I've thought about various philosophies of how to live. I've tried to understand them all, and I can tell you right now, the only religion in the world that offers this thing called grace is Christianity. C.S. Lewis, this is... Kind of an apocryphal story, but I really like it, so I'm going to tell you anyway. True or not, the point is good. There was a massive religious conference at Cambridge University where he taught, and scholars of various religions and philosopher, philosophers—yeah, no, that's the right way to say it—philosophers and philosophers and theologians. They were all in this big meeting room, and they're they're debating the issues of what. What are the unique things of different religions? What makes Christianity sort of unique, et cetera? And he apparently stumbled, you know, I can picture him in his frumpy suit. you know, he stumbles in with his pipe sticking out of his mouth and opens the door and he goes, ah, what's all the hubbub about? And someone says, oh, well, Dr. Lewis, we were just talking about religions and the uniqueness of different religions and we're trying to understand at the core, what is Christianity and what makes it unique? And he said, that's easy, grace. In fact, I will go so far as to say to you that this concept of grace, which I still haven't defined for you yet, (laughs) this concept of grace is so unique, is so different, is so counterintuitive to the human psyche that it is actually a proof of the truth of Christianity. What do I mean by that? What I'm trying to tell you is no human being Would have ever thought up this concept concept when they were coming up with a religion it has to be divine now we're going to look at this text romans chapter 3 we're going to look at two things we're going to we're going to look at the problem and we're going to look at the remedy those are the two things in this chapter this is an extremely dense chapter romans 3 we could do a litany of of sermons on just this this passage that we read together but I encourage you to spend the rest of your life working out the deep theology in here. We're just going to look at these two things. First of all, what this text shows us is that human beings have a problem. Verse 22, it says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God saying here, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, he's saying that that every human being on the planet since the history, since the beginning of time we all have the same problem. Good people, bad people, you know, smart people, not so smart people, educated people, uneducated people, rich people, poor people, of every race, of every class, of every type, all human beings share this one problem together. It's that we've sinned and that we fall short of the glory of God. What is Paul talking about? Well, what is sin? Sin is, first of all, breaking God's law. God has given us the law, these are, this is his, his blueprint for how we ought to live our lives. And every human being breaks that. It's true. But it's more than just breaking law. If you, if you go to the Ten Commandments, which is a great summary of the law, you can find it in Exodus chapter 20. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You read that, and what are the first two commandments? What does it say? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not put any gods before me, and you should not make for yourself an idol. In other words, idolatry. That's the first thing on the list. Don't commit idolatry. What's idolatry? It's basically valuing, desiring, worshiping, Something other than God and more than God. And whenever you break any of the other commandments, you've already broken the first one. This is something that Martin Luther discovered when he, you know, it's Reformation Sunday, right? This is something that Martin Luther discovered when he rediscovered the gospel. He discovered that, that behind the sins we commit is always the sin of of, of of idolatry in some way, shape, or form. Think about this. Let's say you cheat on your taxes. Nobody here cheats on their taxes, but so I can use this illustration, because it's safe. Nobody here does that. What is that? That's a lie. But why do you cheat on your taxes? It's because there's something underneath that sin that, that you desire, that you long for. Perhaps you, you worship money, and the thought of the government taking a portion of your money disturbs you. Maybe it's status. Maybe you love the status that comes with money, the sense of respect that, that you feel you get from other people because you are successful, maybe in business or whatever. Maybe. It's comfort. Maybe you worship comfort, and and money, it provides comfort, right? You can go on nice vacations. You can have a nice stressless chair, which I still don't have. Anybody want to get me a stressless chair? I'd love to have it. They're super comfortable. Money can provide these things for us. But every sin, so so the Baha'i lie is actually a love of something other than God. So all sin at first is is idolatry. That's, That's the one problem we have. We have all sinned. We have all worshiped something other than God in our hearts. We have made something, as Paul says in Romans 1, we have made something in the created order, something that God has made. Just a sec. Can you mute me for a sec? We have all taken something that God has made in the created order, and we have made that thing our God instead of the one who has made it. That's the first problem. Okay. But then there's a second problem. Paul says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. How curious, eh? What does that mean? I remember, like, you know, I've gone to church most of my life, and I remember as a child hearing that and going, well, fallen short of the glory of what on earth could that mean? Could that mean that, like, I have fallen short of my potential? No, 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 that can't be me. That can't be what it is because I'm not supposed to think highly of myself. A good character trait of a human being created in God's image and a follower of Jesus Christ is humility, right? But as I've grown, studied people much, much smarter than me, I can see that, that I can now understand that that is precisely what Paul is talking about. He's saying, First of all, that we cannot see God's true glory. And so we do not love him as he deserves. Our sin has blinded us. Our sin has blinded us so that we don't, we don't see the glory that God truly has, and so we don't worship him as he truly deserves. That's the one thing. But it also, sin has so blinded us that we don't do what we were called to do, which is reflect God's glory, his righteousness, his righteousness. His majesty, His beauty. We don't reflect it the way we were supposed to. Genesis 1 tells us that we were created in the image of God. We were created to be reflections of His character, reflections of His grandeur. In in other words, we were made to be great. We were. Now here's a question most Christians are very uncomfortable asking, but it's really worth asking. Do you sense that in yourself? I mean, when you're asking yourself what's wrong with me, aren't you asking yourself more than simply there's things that I do wrong, there are laws that I keep breaking and transgressing? Are you not asking yourself also why am I not what I should be? What I, why am I not what I am able to be? C.S. Lewis once again he said that there are no ordinary people that within all of us because we are created in the image of God there is a greatness there is a glory there is a dignity that we share and yet we don't have it we don't experience it you know You know parents always say oh my kid is special right and then when you're sitting there listening to them you're like in your head you're rolling your eyes yeah your kid is special okay your kid can do great things sure but you say to yourself they're not really that special not like my kid now my kid is special because this is this is what my kid has done that's been pretty impressive no they're all special in a sense we're all special because we're created as image bearers of God, created to reflect the glory of God. But here's the problem, because of sin, we're, okay, sorry, I jumped ahead. Created to reflect the glory of God. We're we're created as mirrors where God shines on us and we reflect outward his glory and his majesty through our lives. But the problem is because of sin, because we've chosen to love something other than him as our ultimate good, and usually it's our own hearts, what have we done? We've turned away from him. If a mirror is turned away from the sun that it's supposed to be reflecting, it can't reflect it anymore, can it? That's us. And so we fall short. We do not reach the potential that God has created us for. And this is a problem with all people. And by the way, this is why the Christian faith has the highest, actually, the highest view of human nature that you will find anywhere in the world. You know, one of the things going on in our secular society right now is is a denigration of human image-bearerness to the point where we, we are now expanding even our, uh, our assisted suicide laws to potentially include young people who are, who are minors but demonstrate some kind of maturity, to include those people who perhaps don't have uh, the, the capacity to understand what's happening to them and their, their potential to live a full and meaningful life. In other words, infants, believe it or not. But in in the Christian faith, the human being, just by virtue of being a human being, has a dignity, has a beauty, has a majesty to it. That means it ought to be protected. That's why we are pro-life, and we're pro-life from beginning to end. Because this thing that we call a human being, when you look in the eyes of another human being, you are looking at something that is created in the image of God to reflect his character, reflect his nature. It is precious beyond anything else in this world. The secular world says that basically we are a bunch of atoms slapped together. We're no different than crabgrass, crabgrass or cats or, or budgies or whatever. Yes, we're a more complicated form, of course. But that's essentially what we are. We are a bunch of atoms slapped together. And and if a secularist talks about the dignity of human beings, that it is just sort of an, an, an inalienable part of their existence, they're, what they're doing is is they're borrowing from Christianity. Anyway, that's an aside. The problem is we're falling short. What's the remedy now? Is the remedy self-help? Is it is it stiff upper lip? White-knuckle your way through, try harder. Is the remedy give up and despair? Of course not. Is the remedy to tell the world, look, this is who I am. I am my problem. Excuse me. I am my problem. I am my problem, and you all have to deal with it. You can't teach old dogs new tricks is the remedy to repress repress it the way so many human beings do. We repress it with busyness, or booze, or buying, or babes, or boys, or books. We repress it. We quiet the voice through these distractions. No, no, Paul says no. The answer to this problem is grace. What does he say in verse 24? He says all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through jesus christ now there's a lot of sermons in that that verse right there too but let me simplify for us for our purposes today paul is saying this when jesus christ died on the cross for our sin he redeemed us he bought our freedom from being condemned for our sin and he did that by paying the debt that we owe for our sin but that's not all he did it says that we have been justified freely by his grace justification is not just forgiveness okay justification is more it's actually being given glory let me explain to you the righteousness of God described in this passage has to be the righteousness of Christ that Jesus died the death we should have died yes but whatever he do? Anybody from my catechism class this morning? He didn't just die the death we should have died. What else did he do? He lived the life that we should have lived. And so what Paul is saying here is is that the perfect record of Jesus' life, his life of obedience, is given to us And it's not just a perfect record of obedience in the sense that that Jesus avoids sin. You know, he didn't smoke and didn't drink and didn't go with girls who do. That he didn't break any of the Ten Commandments. It's not just that. It's also that he perfectly imaged the character of God. Hebrews 1 calls Jesus the exact representation of the divine. He reflected God's glory perfectly in his life on earth. He was perfectly just. He was perfectly compassionate. He was perfectly courageous. He was perfectly selfless in his love. He actually died for his enemy. And what Paul is saying is, is that Jesus' life God credits that perfect righteousness. Not just the obedience but the the beauty and the majesty and the glory of his life. He credits that to us too. Christ's Righteousness is ours. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to to seek through self-improvement, moral improvement, through these things. We don't have to worry about making sure our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds in order to get the love and favor of God. God looks at us, and he doesn't see who have fallen short and don't measure up. He sees his perfect son's righteousness. He doesn't look at you and say, you squeaked in. The bar was here, and you just got over it, and you're in. That's not how God operates. The Bible says that the Lord delights in you. He sees you through the same lens that he sees his own perfect son. Think about this. What honors, what, what accolades, What medals, what certificates of appreciation, if I can... Oh, that's a terrible way to describe it. What does Jesus deserve for what he has done for us in his death on the cross? What does Paul say in Romans 2? Therefore... God exalted, not Romans 2, Philippians 2. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The universe is going to bow to Jesus. Well, friends... bow to us too because we are covered with the glory the cosmic valor of our savior in jesus christ the gospel is that in jesus christ you are all that you were meant to be that's grace you don't deserve it you didn't earn it it was freely given Free means it's a gift. See, what matters in our relationship with God is not our past. It's Christ's past. Remember I said Christianity is is unique and all these religions say that we're all climbing the mountain. You know why Christianity is unique? Because in Christianity, God doesn't say, climb up the mountain to me. No. He came off the peak himself and came down to the foot of the mountain. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves and all we have to do receive it you see here's the picture this most of us try to come to god with a whole load of nicely wrapped presents okay we have an arm full of gift for god we here's my generosity and here's my service And uh, here's my worship, and here's my my treating my neighbor well. I've done all these things, and we want to say, here it is, Lord. And God comes to us with a gift called salvation by grace, and, and he wants to give it to us. But the problem is our hands are full. So what do you do? If you want his gift, what do you do? You drop your gifts. And you hold out your hand and you receive by faith the greatest gift anyone could receive. Friends, I know you want to make yourself worthy. It is, Martin Luther said, it's the default mode of the human heart. But you can't. And for all the time you're trying to make yourself worthy and holding out those gifts, God is saying, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously, complete, complete. You hear that? Complete. You no longer fall short. Now, implications, very quickly, for Grace Valley Church. First of all, let me give you a a personal one. It's scary. The implication is that we, each of us, are therefore constrained to give our entire lives to our God and Savior. We can hold absolutely nothing back. You see... If salvation is by grace alone, then that means you've contributed absolutely nothing to your salvation. But if you've contributed at least even just a little bit to your salvation, you can, you can kind of hold something back from God. You can say, hey, God, well, there's, there's a limit to the things you owe. You can take 90% of me because uh, uh, you gave me 90% grace, but I did 10% work, and so I get to give hold 10% back. But if God has done everything, if it's 100% him and him alone who does everything for your salvation, the only proper response, the only logical response, the only reasonable thing to do is to hold nothing back from him and, and give it all to him. imagine you're a house i'm trying to think of every metaphor i can to help sink this in folks you're a house and god bought you and he moves in and he's going to renovate do you have any right to say to him well you can renovate all of the house except this room we got to give our all back to him. Second thing it means, it means that we can never, ever, ever, ever look down on others, ever. No one should come to this church and feel like, you know, these people, they tolerate me. They sort of put up with me but I can sense that, that they really don't accept me because I'm different or I'm not as good. I dress poor. I don't have a nice car. I still rent. I live in an apartment. I don't know. Whatever. Make up your own prejudice in your own mind. Fill in the blank. No one should ever, 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 ever feel that way. Why? Because the wonder of the gospel is this. There are no good Christians. Stop trying to be a good Christian. When I come to visit you and I ask you, how are you doing and how's your prayer life and stuff like that, don't shake your head and say, I'm not a very good Christian, but I'm trying. Stop doing that. I know you're a terrible Christian. (laughs) There's only ever been one good Christian. He's perfect. And he is now interceding for you. But at the same time, don't ever look at someone else and say, why don't they have their act together? Because you and I, we are on the exact same level all the time before the throne of our king. That's the second thing. The third thing is, this therefore better be a place where it's okay to mess up. I don't mean it's okay to take sin lightly and do whatever you want. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, if it's all by grace, what should we say in response to this? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, of course not. I'm not saying that we should take sin lightly, but I am saying that we should be honest, that we don't have our house in order, that our families may be a mess, just like our house (laughs) or our apartment. We need to stop putting on airs. I gotta admit, it happened in in a Presbyterian church while I was in seminary, Something happened to me that never happened to me before. Jess and I were talking to a a lovely couple. We were new to the church. We were just just having an introductory conversation with them. We didn't really know them very well. And uh, in the midst of the conversation, they they said, you know what? Uh, If you you can remember, we could really use prayer. Like, these are total strangers. Well, almost total strangers. We knew them a little bit. They said, if you could pray for us, we could really appreciate it. We were concerned about our, our oldest son. He's not walking with the Lord right now. And we were just sort of taken aback about by the honesty and the vulnerability. I'm not saying that you need to like, like just spit your heart out onto the floor in front of everybody all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that what we saw in this couple was just a, a, a openness and honesty, a, a, a willingness to say our house is not entirely in order, but it's okay that that's the case because we don't live by works, we live by grace. And Grace Valley should be a place where, look, the truth is, the church is actually often a place of pretty high achievers. There's study after study after study that that shows that um, churches generally in the West, at least, made up of educated, relatively success, quite successful Uh Quite put together people and you want to say well that's because the gospel changes people but the truth is is that that oftentimes the church is attractive to high achieving people who want to be good here's a place where where I'm taught how to be good and I can work hard at being good and I have a place to be good and there are people to witness my goodness If you live like that you're gonna kill yourself potentially literally but certainly it will be an acid on your soul because every night you will go to bed and you will say what's wrong with me why am I still blowing it and the weight of that kind of burden is too heavy for anyone to bear last thing, this is it. We will be a community that is quick to repent and quick to forgive. Quick to repent. Christians are quick to repent. It's a great way to test whether you believe the gospel when you have your sin pointed out to you. Do you go, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. Well, you need to understand. This happened and this happened. It's very circumstantial. Do you justify it and say, well, everybody else is doing it? Do you blame shift and say, well, if you hadn't said X, I wouldn't have had to say Y. Do you do any of those things? Or do you go, man, you're right, I'm sorry, please forgive me. See, if you are living by grace,